Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of this collaboration between the Penn Innovators in Business series and the Zoom Memes for Self-Quarantines page. In this series, we bring leaders and innovators from different fields to share their advice and experiences with undergraduate students to provide inspiration and motivation during the pandemic. We are so happy to have with us Mr. Tim Draper. Tim is the founder of Draper Associates and Draper Fisher Jerviston. He has been a major factor in bringing to life companies such as Tesla, Baidu, Hotmail, and Skype, just to name a few. And he is also the founder of Draper University and the author of the book, How to Be a Startup Hero, which, by the way, I wholeheartedly recommend. Go. <laughs> Thank you. This whole interview is dedicated to the Draper's heroes with the mission to research, develop, and share educational models and methods that encompass, explore, and promote intrapreneurial career paths. Check out the link down below to see how you can support and learn more about it. Also, throughout the interview, feel free to comment any questions you have for Tim below and we'll open the Q&A later in the interview. So thank you so much for joining, Tim. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. This is terrific. Yes. So first of all, why did you choose to dedicate this interview to Draper's Heroes Institute? Oh, Draper, I created Draper University, and it's a school for entrepreneurs. And, and actually during the pandemic, and it's a really interesting school, students come, but it's only six weeks, and they come for hero training and they, we challenge them emotionally, physically, spiritually, intellectually, every which way. In fact, physically they go through survival training with Navy SEALs and special forces and army Rangers, and they get speeches by, we've had Elon Musk. We've had uh, the founders of Airbnb. We've had a variety of really great speakers there. Twitch, which is one of the companies I got started. All right, funded. So we, we created this school and the school is a for-profit school, although to date really hasn't made a profit, but it's a for-profit school so that I'm not con constrained by nonprofit ruling and I can in effect do what I need to do to make the school as effective as possible because no school would allow a bunch of students to go out to survival training and with a bunch of Navy SEALs, they too many lawyers involved. They'd never let that happen, but do. And, and we do challenge the students in ways that you probably would never get challenged in a very cushy environment, like at Penn where they protect you and all we, we don't protect you. And this is for when you're like 24, 25 years old and you're, you've come out into the world after college. And you've had a job and you look around, and you go, God, there's gotta be more to life than this. And I've got some real passion for fixing this problem. I don't know exactly how to do it. And so we look to encourage these students. Okay. So that's at draperuniversity.com, but this is, I'll get you, I'll get to your answer, but this is for those students. And what we do with the students is they might have an idea or just an idea of what they want to, the problem they want to solve. And then we say, now, how do you turn that into a product or a service? And then is it a product or service somebody would be willing to buy and pay money for? And then is, it a, is there a way to design your business so that it actually makes money? Because if you don't make money, you don't do anybody any favors. And then it's how big can it get and how do you move it to the globe? How do you open the world up? So that was Draper University. Draper Hero Institute is the nonprofit adjunct. And some of the things we do at Draper Hero Institute are we have a maker space. 
So you can go make whatever. We've got people working on flying cars and cricket hamburgers and a whole wide variety of things in the makerspace. We also have a VR studio, VR arcade, where people can explore VR. And then we have a startup index, which is we're taking all the data from all the states and all the countries around the world. And we're saying, which ones are the best for starting businesses? And that isn't just where is all the venture money. It's things like who has the lightest regulations or low taxes on entrepreneurs or who, who creates the best environment, which countries accept Bitcoin as national currency, which countries have 5G, those kinds of questions. Those are the big questions. And then, and we're creating an index of that. So that's what Draper Hero Institute does. So that's it for that question. And what's the goal for students or it's to inspire entrepreneurship, inspire creativity? Yeah, our thinking is we're trying to create more entrepreneurs, more people who have great passion and we can guide them toward doing something about it. It was pretty interesting. My daughter wrote a great letter about the troubles that she had in raising her venture fund and how the women wouldn't put very much money in. They were supporting her as much as possible, but they would never put their own money in. And the guys were just rude to her. And, and she wrote a great article about how this is, she got something's wrong here, but she, what she didn't get to is that, Hey, women control about half the money in the world and actually retail, they control about 80%. Take a risk on women. Try funding women, put your effort, put risk behind it and don't be such a, with your money when, and that's a message to the widows of the world who have money from whatever, or the entrepreneurial women who have made it or whoever take that money, put it to work and do something great. It's a big deal to do that. Anyway, we're trying to encourage more men and women to become entrepreneurs because it's entrepreneurs who, who make it all happen. They do something. They go out, they do something. They create the software from nothing. They create the flying car from nothing. They create a COVID vaccine from nothing. They work to do something extraordinary. And then they sell it. They figure out how to make money. Go, if I have no other advice for students, it's advice that doesn't come from any professor anywhere in the world. It's make money, read science fiction and make money. Those two things will take you very far because if you're not making money, you're part of the needy. So you create, you become part of the problem and you're not providing any service that anybody's willing to buy. So you're not providing a good service. You might think you are, but you're not. And so create a great service, something that, and if it's a really great service, the money will help you spread it around the world. So whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit, make money. So those are my two big suggestions and read science fiction because you want to, you want to be prepared for a lot of different futures. No one was predicting the pandemic, but if you read a lot of science fiction, you would have seen how people might have thought about reacting to a pandemic. Interesting. First of all, 
I think since our target audience is mostly students, there there's very few widows with a lot of money in our audience space. No, but, but your parents and grandparents, they've got money. But it's, I think the second- Talk to your grandparents. They are very wise and all they care about is your future. But I think Spend the second- some time with your grandparents. Yes, I think that's so important. I definitely agree. And the second part's the students who can become future entrepreneurs and will have a lot of money. I think this group and Penn students and everybody that this is the hope that we all have and making money and creating impact is something that I think we all strive to do, but we're learning from people. Oh, yeah. You got to make money to make an impact. Otherwise you're really not doing it. You might say stuff or whatever, but you're not doing it. this <laughs> pandemic. I got to go into this. Yes. It is. It's a nightmare to start with because it's killing people. But what are politicians and media have done is the biggest crime to humanity that we've ever had in the history of the world. This pandemic is nothing by comparison to the shutdown. This pandemic might kill a million people. That's a bad thing. It's horrible. Might kill a million people. The lockdown is, according to the UN, going to kill 135 million people from starvation. And that doesn't go into depression. It doesn't go into domestic violence. It doesn't go into all the things that are happening now or starting to happen because of the lockdown and because people shut down restaurants, bars, travel, hotels, planes, taxis. We are all interconnected. Let me give you an example. Here's an example. Let's say I have a house. And Chris has a farm and we are the only two people. If we don't do business, I die of starvation and he dies of exposure. We need to do a deal. So multiply that deal by 8 billion people. We are all interconnected. Everything, this pen probably touched 500 people around the world before it got to me. This mug probably touched 800 people before it finally got to me. You, this book probably touched a thousand people before it got to me. Your computer, that, that probably touched a hundred, a hundred thousand people. All these things are affected by all these people from all around the world. What we, this wonderful service that we have, we get our food and so this and that. It all shows up with the housing and all, it's all there. That all came from all these people working very hard to make that happen. And so we're all interconnected. So we all need to serve each other. And when you do a lockdown, you shut off businesses and those businesses die. The people die. The ability for you to get your services dies. People were panicking about losing toilet paper or whatever. And having a lockdown like this is really off. And they have, and they've done the quick political thing. The media has done whatever they can to show you a shiny object. So you go, oh, that's scary. I got to watch media. They've done the worst thing they could have possibly done for us, for humanity. They've killed 135 million people and they could have gotten away with just a million dying. So this is a nightmare. And, and so that, but this nightmare for you creates all sorts of opportunities. There is a 
whole new platform from which you can take us to new worlds. You can get us thinking about new things. When there's a shock to the system like this, people open their minds to new ways of thinking. One example is our company that does uses biocomputational biochemistry to look at diseases and run off-patent drugs against them. Found something that was 26 more times more effective at combating COVID than remdesivir, which is the primary thing people are using now. That's something an entrepreneur did and they've done it. And now it's going through FDA approval and whatever. The other thing that's happened is we're all locked in place. People are playing more games. Games are good. They're healthy for your brain. They get you thinking in new ways. They get you innovating. They make you creative. That's a good thing. They Twitch has been a great thing for new ways of communicating. And that was, it was a big success for us. People are using VR. VR has got all sorts of new applications that you can, you can push for. People are using getting Bitcoin wallets because they're stuck in place. And they're going, hey, let me try this thing. Oh, this is interesting. And they're also getting Bitcoin wallets because, mostly because the government, again, printed $13 trillion. Just to give you an exam, a sense for how big $13 trillion is, this was $13 trillion to save the people who have been thrown out of work or whatever onto the street. But 36 trillion is dollars, all the currency around the world. So they've just printed 13 trillion. There is no way that the dollar is now not now worth about 20% less than it was before they printed 13 trillion. So people are going, whoa, hey, let's get Bitcoin. Bitcoin, there are only 21 million of them. We know it's, it's got to be a very stable currency and let's hold on to those. They're going to be worth a lot more than the dollars down the road. And it's just better. Bitcoin's just better. It's easier to use. It's easier to send. It's, it's global. So if you're stuck in Syria and you, and the government shoves you out and you got a bunch of Syrian money, you're out of luck. You become a refugee in Greece or Italy or something. But if you're Syrian and the government shoves you out and all your money's in Bitcoin, you just pull it right down and you start your life over in Greece. There are so many more. And if you need to do micro payments or if they're, payments across borders or whatever. Bitcoin's just so much better. So we've got to, and I wear a tie to support Bitcoin because of that, because I know that it's so much better. We will definitely talk um, about blockchain and Bitcoin soon in the interview. But let's first start off earlier. You graduated from Stanford. You went to Phillips Exeter and... Andover, Andover. Okay. You went to Andover. Exeter. My partner went to Exeter. No, they're okay. our big rival. Yes. Oh, I, I went to Andover. I went to the really awesome school. Sorry about the mistake. But what was... And uh, I, by the way, I sacked their quarterback. I sacked the Exeter quarterback in big game twice. Yes. Our lineman, <laughs> defensive end. That was a big highlight of my Andover career. It but, was good to go to Andover. Andover was, it made me think independently. It made me realize what's important. It being away from parents, it made me very independent. It made me self-sufficient. So that was a great thing. And then going to Stanford, turns out the academics at Stanford were as tough as the ones at Andover, but the, but they made you think harder, which was a great thing. And I was an electrical engineer there. I really enjoyed that. 
I started out as a physics major, but then I realized that my dad told me, you might want to study electrical engineering because there are a lot of jobs for electrical engineers. And that, that helped me with my career. I think that was a big help. And then I went to work for Hewlett Packard for a couple of years and, and it was tough. I didn't like working for a big company. I was not well suited for it. And then I, so I applied to business school and I went to Harvard and had a wonderful business school experience. And then I came out and worked at Alex Brown as an investment banker for about a year before realizing that investment banking wasn't for me. And I started my venture fund then. You don't seem like the person who would work in a large company or even an investment bank. Why did he choose to do that? And if you would do it over, what do you go back and see? Yeah, actually, I should answer that question a little differently. Because if I were to do it over, I'd do it over now. If I were to do it now, I still might join a big company so that I have an understanding of how that big company world works. So that when I started my small company, I would know how to get it to be a good big company. And big companies have better training programs than smaller companies do. They have more resources. And the investment banking world, I just realized that I've always been a game player, chess player. And I, and I realized that an investment banker is a little bit more of a referee than somebody who's playing on one side or the other. They're the kind of people who make a bet on a team and take seven points. And then they make the same bet with somebody else on an even bet. And then they make the money in the, when the outcome is somewhere in between but they don't lose money on the outsides. I'm much more risk-taking. I think risk is part of what makes, at least has made America great. It's a part of what, until the debate last night, America was great. The, it's, what, it's what makes for great things to happen. One of the things we say at Draper University is I will fail and fail again until I succeed. And the word fail is used intentionally there. Because in school, how do you get an A? You make no mistakes. If you make no mistakes, you get an A. That is not a risk-taking environment. That is not what you're looking for. And so what I do at Draper University is I have to kind of reprogram you. I have to make you think, hey, I have to make some mistakes along the way. If I really want to make something interesting happen, I've got to push and push and try different things and see what works. And you put all those things together and you could become a great entrepreneur, but you've got to really push. And I'm a little concerned about the kinds of things that the, and maybe this is just because I'm old, but that the people are teaching in school because in the US, because I feel like they're teaching you to be soft. And, and I don't think you're going to get anywhere being soft. I think you're just going to, people are just going to run right over you and it's going to be over. In fact, I've got to be honest, we have much stronger students coming from overseas than we do from coming from America at Draper University. We are very selective. We take the best and, and those tend to be from other countries where the people had to get tougher. The idea of, I think there was a mistake made because we used to strive for the best and the brightest. Who can be the best and the brightest? Let's become the best and the brightest. 
And then all of a sudden, it was like no child left behind. And then you're focused on the worst and the dumbest. Get out there and be the best and the brightest and expect the best and the brightest of people. Expectations make all the difference. If I expect you to do something extraordinary, you might not reach that extraordinary peak, but you'll do a lot more than if I, if I expect nothing of you. And so I think that's where schools are making big mistakes. They should set very high expectations and they should be honoring the best and the brightest and continue to do that and make it completely oblivious to race, sex, creed, religion, any of that stuff. It's just who is doing the best? Let's focus on them. And then everybody goes, God, how do I get to be like that? How do I achieve something really extraordinary? And that's something you're probably not hearing from any of your professors. So it's, I'm glad I said it. I think, yeah, meritocracy and ability for education. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. But if but, you yeah. really think people are saying, hey, we need socialism, you, what they're really saying is, we need something else because what we've got now is getting towards socialism. It's where the, the government controls everything. You say, oh, the government should have this rule, should have this rule. You're handing power to the government. If you really want the government to run your world, go to North Korea. North Korea is one of the poorest countries in the world. It is a socialist dictator. And then you go to South Korea. That is a capitalist free market. Here's the difference. The average North Korean makes about $100 a year. The average South Korean makes about $46,000 a year. The average South Korean, now it's been three generations of socialism in North Korea, capitalism in South Korea. Three generations. The average South Korean is four inches taller than the average North Korean today. They're starving up there. It's, it makes no sense. And I can give you other examples. The USSR collapsed because it was socialist, whereas the US thrived because it was capitalist. Hong Kong thrived because it was capitalist. Communist China under Mao died. It was the worst. It was down to $100 per capita in China. And then when they freed everybody up and it went to Deng Xiaoping and he freed it up, we got a great economy in China. And now it looks like it's gone the other way. The, and then I'll give you one other thought, and that's this. Trust. Trust people and be honorable to your own trust. If you are trustworthy, you will create a great environment around you. If you say you're going to do something and you do it, people around you are going to go, that guy said something and he did it. And, and now let me give you why. The richest countries in the world are the ones that trust. The most trustworthy country in the world today is probably Singapore. But 60 years ago, it was the least trustworthy. Say it was the Singapore sling and the prostitutes and the whole thing. And, and it was corruption all the way, top to the bottom. And they were making about $100 per capita per year. Now they make about 36000 per capita per year because Lee Kuan Yew said, 
we are going to be a trustworthy society. We are going to trust each other and we are going to honor trust. And anybody who steps out of that line is going to be an outlaw or outside of our country. And that country became incredibly valuable. And then you look at India and that's been a corrupt country for so many years. And it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And now only now do they have a president who's saying, or prime minister who's saying, okay, we are going to get rid of corruption. And by getting rid of corruption, all of a sudden businesses start to thrive. People start to do things. Think about this. Let's say you're in Chad, Africa. You're thinking, hey, I want to build a business in Chad. But if you build a business in Chad, the government's just going to steal it from you. They're so corrupt. They're just going to take it. But if you build a business in Singapore, it's going to be there forever. So why not build the business in Singapore? And that's why the value in Singapore, why people thrive in those places where there is trust. If there's corruption at the top, it's the top. It's the leader. You think the leader doesn't have any impact. He has huge, he or she has huge impact in that way. If they're honest, the country is honest. If they're corrupt, the country is corrupt. If they're honest, the country trusts each other and they thrive and they become very valuable, very successful. Everybody wins. I think if they're corrupt, everybody loses and they become a very poor country. And people are thinking, I win, you lose, instead of let's both win and build something together. I think the leader definitely has a very strong impact and presence. And I think you have been a very good leader throughout business and helping companies succeed. And just bringing it back to like business, VC and entrepreneurship, what do you think is something that you look for when you're like looking at new students who are pitching their ideas? So I look at first, I really am looking for, is this big enough? Who's going to care if it's successful? I, I'm very different from other venture capitalists. Other venture capitalists tell you all the things that are wrong. They say, oh, the market's not right. And product's not right or whatever. All I care about is what if it works? What if your vision works? How great will the world be? How awesome? How, are you going to solve a major problem? Are you going to be an ind Are you creating an entirely new industry? Are you doing something really extraordinary? And then I think you got to think for yourself and say, who am I and what's worth it for me to pursue? I've got a great future ahead of me. I went to Penn or whatever other schools are out there listening to this. Look, I got a big future ahead. I'm valuable. What should I focus on? What should I do to make myself more successful? So I'm looking for these these business plans that come to me and they, and I look and I go, huh, never saw anything like this before. Never thought of anything like this before, but boy, if this thing works, it's gotta be huge. And then the other thing I look, I say, is it pretty easy to copy? If it's easy to copy, then I go, but sometimes there's a benefit to being first and you can build a network effect and that's, then there is a little more value there. And then when I meet with the entrepreneur, I'm really looking for passion, but it's got to be inside of them. And I'll ask questions and pull it out of them. Like, why are you doing this? And, and because passion doesn't necessarily mean enthusiasm, but it's enthusiasm helps. 
but it sometimes it just means, hey, this is something I really got to do. If I don't do it, either somebody else will or no one else will. If no one, I, I, if I don't do this, no one else will. I've got to get it done. And that kind of passion is the beginning of a trillion dollar business. That's what I'm looking for. If you are in a team, I'm looking for not just a couple of friends who got together over a beer. I am looking for a team that has been handpicked. We've got this person from the chem engineering department, this person from the computer science department, and me, I'm a business person. I'm, we're putting these things, to, the three of us together, we're going to make something interesting happen. And it's because we need the chemistry in this, and we need the computer science in this, and we need the business to look like this. And we're the right team for this. And then I look for when the team comes in, I look to see how much trust they have in each other. If they're talking over each other, it's usually a bad sign. If they all want to be CEO or whatever, that's a bad sign. If, if one keeps correcting the other one or one's dominant over the other one, that kind of thing, those are usually a bad sign. The good signs are when somebody speaks and then they pass it over to the next guy or the girl and the girl says her piece and they're all saying, yeah, that's great what she does. So it's pretty clear. You can orchestrate that. You can do a better job of pitching a venture capitalist just by orchestrating trust in each other. And then, and then I tend to help the entrepreneur with their business model because a lot of people come and say, Hey, I'm going to cure death. And then I say, okay, that's great. You can cure death. How are we going to turn that into a business? So that, that happens a lot. I think one big part of VCs is being a futurist, seeing the future. And you mentioned like what we should spend our time in. That is a very huge factor. What will we do in the next step? If you're our age, what would you spend your time? First, it's easier for you guys to think of the future than for somebody my age, because you can think, hey, 80 years out, what's the world going to look like 80 years out? I'm, that's my plan. I'm, I got an 80 year plan. My plan has to be more like 40 years. And, and so you can project further out. And a lot's going to happen in the next 80 years. And what's really interesting is how fast, at least over the last century, how fast we've accelerated as a people. And, and now we have probably 5 billion people on the planet who have these things, smartphones, which means they all have access to the same information, more or less. And that means that they can all think through how to move us forward. You do need to be a futurist. You have to not just think what would be great now, but you've got to think what'll be great in five years, what'll be great in 15 years, what'll be great in 50 years. And, and that will help you think about your business. And then you've got to figure out how to delight your customer. And when you come up with your, your business idea, Go ahead, ask your friends. They'll all say, oh, yeah, that's a really great idea. But what you really want to do is ask people if they will pay for it. And then all of a sudden, the rubber meets the road. And you realize, well, I really don't have a great idea here because nobody's willing to pay me. And that, that will open up your mind in a new way. But being an entrepreneur is a great thing. And it teaches you so much. And you're 
education accelerates beyond where you ever imagined it would. It's interesting in school, you do a lot of very deep thinking. That's at least what I felt like I did. When you get out, you feel like at first you feel like it's all very shallow thinking because you think, oh, this is all I have to do is this and I'm working and I know they get, but it, as you get further in, it gets to be deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and you will learn so much by just saying, Hey, I got a product. It's a book. I want to sell this book. That would be a great business. Just go out and sell the book. And it doesn't even matter if the business makes a lot of money or not. It's just go out, try something, put something together, sell it to people, figure out what that's, and then watch over your money. Uh, you will learn a ton. See, did he do that when you were younger? Did he try to Oh, sell? yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you. My first experience was I, we had an apple tree out back and, and I went and I, picked away, I guess it was in the front yard, but I went and I picked a bunch of apples and sold them on the road. And, and I did it for a couple of weeks, three, four weeks during the summer. And every once in a while, one of my friends would come by and, and by the way, this was the beginning of a long entrepreneurial career. I sold oysters. I created Stanford, the game. I did, anyway, I did a whole bunch of different entrepreneurial things before I became a venture capitalist. But this was interesting because then a woman from next door came to me, the mother of some of the kids who had been hanging around. And she said, well, so how much money did you make? And I went, I said, $8. And that was over the course of about three or four weeks. And I was holding the $8. And she said, give me that. And she said, okay, so who was here and helped you? And I said, I guess he was, and she was, and, and so what she did was she gave $1 to each of them, $1 to me and took $2 for herself. And I realized that's socialism. And I thought, why would I build a business and create this whole thing and then just give it to her and to those guys who really didn't do anything. They just happened to be hanging around while I was selling the apples. So I think people have to understand that we should honor Bill Gates. We should honor Larry Ellison. We should honor Mark, Mark Zuckerberg and Bezos, Jeff Bezos. These are extraordinary people who have done extraordinary things. Think about it. My God, it's hard for you guys to imagine, but we used to, first of all, there was not a supply of very many things out there. But if I wanted to buy a specific piece of clothing or calculator or whatever, I just go on Amazon and the next day it's here. It's like magic. That guy is a magician. Jeff Bezos has created magic. It's fabulous. He should be honored every moment of every day. That guy should be honored. Zuckerberg, my God, he's created Facebook and he bought Instagram. And he's done so much for communications around the world and photo records and history and uh, so many interesting media, communication, so many things he's done. He should be honored. We love his service. So let's keep using it. The guys who started Twitch, we love that service. We should be honoring those people, the people who created uh, Elon Musk. He is being honored. 
He's like the only guy who's being honored for all these things that all these people have done. One thing, um, they are not super, they're head of different industries. But one thing that you're really spearheading is like the blockchain and Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah. And why do you think this is the future? Yeah. So it's just better. I'll start with simply a dollar is tied to a government. And the government swings, if it's a Democrat, they print more of them, Republican, they print less, but they print and they print whatever. And maybe it, it flows one way or another and they're, but we are at the mercy, our dollars are at the mercy of some political force one way or another. Our dollars are going to be worth, definitely going to be worth less next year. One dollar today is going to be worth a lot less in a year. I think you, you look and you say, well, that's one problem. I mentioned that Bitcoin can be used to store value so you can go from country to country. It's global. It's also well, transparent. It's kept store value. It can be a great store of value. Yeah. You can. Oh, hold. What do you mean just for the audience? Oh, you can store your value. Let's say you have some money and let's say it's in the form of dollars. That's a value. Let's say you have a hundred dollars. If you insert, make it 12,000. You say, I can either have dollars with this and that's one way to store the value. I can go buy a couple ounces of gold. That can be a store of value. Or I can buy some Bitcoin and that can be a store of value. Or I can buy a car and that can be a store of value, but you know, that's going to go down in value the moment you drive it out of the lot. It can be, you can buy a piece of land, you can buy a whatever. And each of those is a store of value and Bitcoin as a store of value is certainly a lot better than the dollar where some politician can say, we're going to print 12 trillion of them because there are only 21 million Bitcoin out there and there that's it. There are only 1.2 million or something left to mine, something like that. And the rest, it, that's it. And so, you know, that's going to be a stable currency. It's going to be stable store of value. One Bitcoin will still be worth one Bitcoin, whereas dollars and other currencies are volatile as they drift off the chart. Now, Bitcoin is held on a blockchain, keeps perfect records of every Bitcoin transactions, every Bitcoin transaction. So what that means is it automatically does what I pay accountants, bookkeepers, auditors to do. And, and so this is a much more efficient way to move money around because it keeps perfect records. It can pay my taxes. It can do all that stuff for me. The, the blockchain also can be written into a smart contract and with a smart contract, that means I don't need a big complicated legal document to determine who gets what in the case of selling a company or selling a product or whatever. It's built into the software. It's built into a smart contract. And so I don't have to pay as much to my lawyers for having those contracts. And everything becomes more efficient. And if you are a retail shopper, if you buy things at the store, when you buy things at the store, you don't know it, but you are paying your bank two and a half to 4% every time you swipe your credit card. With Bitcoin, when you pay the storekeeper, the money goes across and there's no friction and you don't pay the bank two and a half to 4%. So you see the banks panicking. They're going, oh my God, this thing's horrible. It's taking my two and a half to 4% every time you swipe your credit card. 
and are paying and once the yeah that's what you are paying the miner to give yeah nothing like two and a half to four percent yeah you do you pay the miners yeah to keep the blockchain healthy you pay the miners yeah but it's tiny by comparison it's nothing and there's a lot of room there where coinbase i think charges one percent but it can over time that can shrink way down because it's just you and the storekeeper and the bitcoin and so yeah there's some real value to bitcoin the other great thing about it is when it's global and you know what happened when the internet showed up i'll give you a little at least my perspective of history people were tribal think about this before the internet people were very tribal they said here's our border don't cross our border or else and that way everybody was safe i don't cross your border you don't cross my border we're safe we're feeling like okay and then we can build our lives and whatever internet shows up and all of a sudden i realized Hey, you've got some cool things on your side of the border. And I've got some cool things you don't have. Let's start trading. I remember going to Russia after the wall came down and they had never had penicillin, but they had immunity boosters. And so they both, we were both solving the same problem in a very different way. And, and so, Hey, we start trading and then we realize, oh yeah, you guys are really good at building a manufacturing base or, Hey, there's much lower cost labor where you are, mm -hmm. or you've got better fruit trees or you got something. So then the trade starts happening and then we all get better off. So for the last 30 years, since the internet kind of popped in there, all of a sudden we've got a really great deal and a great economy. And we're able to build this amazing economy across border. So suddenly those borders that were tribal are less relevant to us. Suddenly we're not tribal anymore. We're global. So then the internet, then, so that internet, everything was going great. And then Satoshi invented Bitcoin and we now have a global currency. So there's a huge opportunity for us to be completely global and operate across border, no problem, no friction with this great currency. And then what's happening is the people who are in power in various countries are looking and going, what's my purpose now? And the best of them are saying, bring it on. We got a new world. We'll make Bitcoin a national currency. Let's get 5G in here. Let's encourage entrepreneurship. Let's trade with anybody. You know, that's where Malta, Gibraltar, maybe Switzerland. Singapore, that's the way they're looking at it. Maybe Estonia, that's the way they're looking at it. And then there are the ones that go, no, we have to be tribal again. And they're saying, we're going to threaten other countries. We're going to put up trade wars. We're going to put up barriers. And, and those are like China today. They're, there's this ongoing threat. They're putting borders up so their people can't move their money outside of China. They can't trade. They can't. They're, president decided he's going to be a lifetime dictator. He's stuck in place and then he decides he's going to take, he's going to own all the companies. So suddenly something that was one of the great entrepreneurial great hopes is now going to, is going through the dark ages. You've uh, been in China a lot through Baidu, through other companies. I, I spent years in China. It was 
best place. I love the people. We've had so much fun. We've created incredible value. Baidu, my gosh, Baidu alone has created more value to that country. And but he, and so it's a real shame what's happened to it. And when China said Bitcoin's illegal, the guy who created Binance had built a $10 billion business at Binance. He had to move. He had to go to another country. So he moved to Singapore and then they got heavy handed. He moved to Malta and they were saying, come on. The other thing that happened was as soon as China said Bitcoin's illegal, uh, Japan said Bitcoin's our national currency. It's one of our national currencies. And so what happens is there's a brain drain out of China and into Japan. And, and so we are global. And if our leaders are still trying to be tribal, they're going to be lost in the dust. I think the biggest challenge for Bitcoin and blockchain is there is a struggle between throughout the past two decades between government and technology. And I think Bitcoin and blockchain actually heightens the crescendo of this. This, yeah. um, You know, it, but it's the government, the government and tech, it's the good governments that are embracing technology. And I, trying I, I, to no, regulate to the technology. And then the bad governments are trying to block it or to I, create, I, I know, create it, it, Consider it's good or bad governments. That no, it's, it, it's good, good or bad. You get bad governments who, who put up trade barriers. It's like shooting yourself in the foot to put up a trade barrier mm -hmm. or create a trade war. It's the stupidest thing. I but see. it's happening. But yes, okay. And then we have also a few question and answers from students what is just what are two books that influenced you the most and why oh i wish i could show it to you one is called bionomics and i was about your age when i read it and and it, it shows you economics from a biological standpoint so they talk about how different species go through uh plateau and then growth and then plateau and then growth depending on different things that happen and i'd say one of the that we were in plateau and then there were the computers and then we're in a plateau and then there's software and then we're in a plateau and there's the internet then we're in a plateau and then there's bitcoin and then and it's these events they he talks about the 12-eyed trilobite or trilobite something like that little bug had 12 eyes and and they they evolved to a 13-eyed trilobite and the 12-eyed trilobite was completely wiped off the planet. So something must have happened there that made the 13th eye really important. And, and so they combined those two. I thought that was a great book. I've read the Bible, the Koran, the book of Mao, Buddha's learnings, the, although I got to get through all of those. And, and I kind of like understanding how people we're thinking in terms of religion. I think that's an important thing. And then I read a ton of science fiction. I think if you've got to read Dune and you've got to read Foundation. They are fundamental to people's thinking and how societies can run and what the future might hold and what inventions might happen out there. I think they're real. I think it's really important. And then, of course, you got to read Ready Player One, right? Because that puts you into the virtual world. That's fun. And then I guess I'd read my buddy. It says you got to read Atlas Shrugged. And what that, the reasoning there is that Ayn Rand, the woman who wrote it, is that it was individual effort that built the railroads and gas, gas companies and the whatever. 
And then the bureaucrats came in and regulated them and ruined their existence. And the builder was not honored the way they should have been. And that, I think, so I actually think that's a pretty good book to read too. And then I'd read by Michio Kaku, the futurist, because he does a lot of work in science and then he translates it to the rest of us. And that's quite valuable to think about the future of humanity, future of physics, a couple of other. Oh, that's a lot for us to read. And I think, oh, by the way, don't read it while you're in school, because when you get, you're reading so much crap in school, you might as well wait until you're out when you read for pleasure and for knowledge instead of just reading to get to the test. Got it. Okay. And the second question is, actually, just jumping off the last question, um, to those who don't know, you were one of the- Oh, wait, read the startup hero. Read that book. Okay. Yes. That that is a very- Startup hero by Tim Draper. That is a very- But to those who don't know, you were one of the inventors of viral marketing. And you also talked about religion. So I'm actually very interested in hearing your perspective of was viral marketing any parts in developing religion? Ah, that's funny. No, what viral marketing came to me, the way it came to me was I do play chess. And so I think several moves ahead. And, and that tends to be a valuable thing in business. And there was a business school case about Tupperware and how women would buy Tupperware, but the only way they could buy it is if they would become a salesperson for it. And so... They made their customers into their sales force. So when the team came to me and they said, we got web-based email and that was a new thing. Nobody had, people had email, but it was only on isolated networks on Lotus one, two, sorry, Lotus notes. And, and that was the only way you could do it is like you could email to somebody else in your company. If you had Lotus notes, these guys created web-based email that opened it up to everybody. And they decided they were going to give it away for free. And I said, look, if you're giving it away for free, at first, how are you going to spread the word? And they said, we need TV ads and radio ads. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is going to cost a fortune. I didn't want to raise that much money for them. So I, I said, what if, what if you just put a message at the bottom of everybody's screen that says, PS, I love you. Get your free email at Hotmail. And they hated the idea to start with. They hated the idea. And of all the investors I could have met, why did I meet this guy? He was, he's such a nut. And I kept pounding the table and finally they said, okay, we'll try it, but no PS, I love you. We'd just say, get your free email at Hotmail. And it spread to 11 million users in 18 months. It was the fastest growing consumer product in the history of the world ever by miles. And, and to this day, I think we would have had a much more peaceful and loving world if they kept P.S. I love you. But in any case, at least we are all communicating with each other because of that product and that service. And, and so viral marketing has opened the world up and those geographic borders became less and less relevant because of Hotmail and those guys who created this amazing web-based email package. And I just stumbled onto the idea of creating viral marketing. And now course, viral marketing was used at Skype and here at Zoom and, and it's used in Facebook. Everything social media is all tied to viral marketing. And so I feel like, wow, that was a big deal. And Actually, I considered before I did it, I considered patenting the idea. And then I thought, no, give it to everybody. Let them use it. You know, this is a great way to spread products and services around the world. Just 
Give it to them. Business schools, including Penn, is still very, like, teaches this as an entire class. And also there's professors. One of my favorite ah. professors, Jonah Berger, has an entire class on contagion, which is one of the best classes. But yes, I think this is almost all the questions we had. And then also the last one we had was actually the final two questions. In your book, you wrote that you offer those who have a birthday at your office to go to the purge, bang Captain America's shield, Thor's hammer, and declare something that other people, including themselves, will have to do on that day. So it's like a rule for the entire day. I know it isn't your birthday, but I'm giving you the authority to set a rule for everybody who's listening and me and you. What would you want people to do? Be free okay. and live your life and don't be free. Oh, and this is more advice. Don't watch the news. They're in the business of spreading fear and fear is the mind killer. Actually, fear is what the president, I just was talking earlier today to the president of Uruguay and he said, people afraid cannot think. And I think he's right. And, and what does the news do? Watch the news with this in mind. Which of these stories is spreading fear? All of them. Every single one is spreading fear. And so they want you to just stay in there and only listen to them and whatever. Don't do that. Anyway, free Europe. If I were the king of the world, I'd say it is a free world. You do what you can. Have a great time doing it. Don't hurt other people, but live free. Got it. Be free and try not to watch the news. And then the last question is, what would your advice be for students amidst this pandemic, even the possible recession? What is your advice going forward? Yeah. Oh boy, they're going to give me a hard time for this, but I would say ignore it. Live your life. If you're concerned, go ahead, wear a mask. But the rest of it, go out to concerts, go out to restaurants, feel like we have destroyed the economy and we've got to rebuild it. Go out. I, I think stuff. the question was more like in the future, like what to look at or like how to look for careers. Oh, the big industries that are going to change are banking's going to go to Bitcoin. The blockchain is going to change accounting. Smart contracts are going to change the legal business. Government's going to change because you can set up a government's mostly insurance, but government's going to change because you can create an insurance company just with an actuary and a bunch of smart contracts and some surveillance. And that could, that'll revolutionize insurance. Healthcare is going to change in a big way because it's going to all be data-based, data-driven. You can do a better job of diagnosing a disease with AI right now than you can with a doctor. And when combined with a doctor, even better. So healthcare is going to change. They're going to do, you're going to be able to, surgery is going to be robotic. There's so many things that are going to change in healthcare. And then I think the real estate business is going to go through a major shift because of companies like Proppy that, that can automate and put on the blockchain everybody's title. I think, and you can tokenize real estate so you can buy pieces of different properties. All these industries, biggest industries in the world are about to go through the biggest transformation in the world. So if you have any kind of an entrepreneurial bug, now's the time. And that'll get, that'll take, lift us out of COVID, out of this lockdown, which is way worse than COVID, out of It'll lift us up and we will, you take us to the world you want us to, you want to live in yourself. 
So now uh, with that, I do have to break. And great being on your show. Thank you. Your questions are fantastic. Thank you, Chris.